0: Well, good morning, church. Welcome. Let me just share with you before we get right into our teaching time. Renee and I were talking this past week, and here's something we've discovered, and maybe I'll just share it with you. We found that, of course, this is on Sunday at 10 o'clock, but YouTube, you can tune in and you can watch it at three o'clock, at two o'clock. You can watch it Monday, all sorts of times. And we were just talking as we were walking one day, and we've tried really hard to 10 o'clock is when church is, and 6.30 Sunday night is when church is, and 7 o'clock on Wednesday night. And what we're, what we're trying to do in that is it's easy when you can watch this any time after 10 o'clock that you want this morning service, it's really easy to build other routines and habits that will make it feel restrictive when we're gathering all together again at 10 o'clock. And so we're trying hard to keep those regular commitments so we don't build other habits into our lives that we have to undo when we start to meet corporately together. Just a suggestion, as much as possible. Let's do this. Let's do this together. Keeping your joy The Heartfelt Theology of an Isolated Prisoner. This is part four. And, And the title for this teaching is The Difference Between Being Forgiven and Growing in Christ. The Difference Between Being Forgiven and Growing in Christ. And I love this text. It's Philippians chapter 1, 9 to 11. Here's what Paul says. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And then he explains with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve, that's the verb, what is excellent. And these things are involved so that, and so be pure. So that comes from these things. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What a text. I mean, Paul has already told us that he spent his days praying for these people with a joyful heart. We, we studied that in verses three and four of this chapter. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So now we're coming to a different issue. It's a little bit more focused. He prays for these people. He loves them. He prays for them with joy. Okay, what do you pray for people that you love? When you are living close to the heart of God, and you really love those for whom you pray, what do you pray for them? What's the most important thing God can do for people? I mean, that's what this boils down to. It's an important question because that's what a truly loving intercessor will want when he prays for someone. He'll want God's very best for that person or those people. And if I can get any help from God's Word as to what is the best thing we can ask for people, if I can get any help from God's Word, I want that. I want to know what that is. Now, today's text, it covers quite a bit of ground in a short space, but it's a bit hard to study because it's actually all one sentence. And so Paul strings his thoughts together here. He strings out his best prayer requests for these people whom he loves, and we're going to look at them like jewels on a necklace. One, he prays their hunger for God will expand and never diminish. I get that in the first part of verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound. Here's the words, great words. Your love may abound more and more. So there's the emphasis, abound more and more. It's not the amount that Paul's interested in. It's the increase that he's interested in. How, how much of your being should be hunger for God? How much is enough? Well, there's only one thing that's enough. More, that's what's enough. Some hungers are beautiful hungers. And Paul prays for this good ache in their hearts for more and then more again. So so there's this sense in which true spirituality should never be completely comfortable. It it always, it constantly stretches and pulls the rest of our goals, time, resources. It, It starts to pull them more and more in God's direction, not our own direction, except that those things become more and more similar as we grow in Christ. I need, I need to catch the spirit of those words more and more. So something burns in Paul's heart. He wants it burning in theirs too. Something's burning in Paul's heart that keeps him from ever saying, there, that's enough. This much is sufficient. In fact, if you go through his letter to the church at Philippi, you'll find he uses that word more quite a bit. Let me just give you some quick examples. We won't do all of them. This text, of course, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Philippians 1.14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear, What an x-ray that is, eh, of Paul's heart. Here's a man, here's a man already in prison. He's already in prison because he wouldn't back down from declaring the gospel. That's why he's in prison. What's he praying? Well, more boldness. The, The thing that got him in prison in the first place, Paul says, I want that increased in my heart. I want that increased in yours too. How much boldness is enough boldness? Well, more. That's how much. Look at at these words, Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my absence, but much more in my presence, rather, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How much obedience to the lordship of Jesus is enough obedience? Well, more. That's how much obedience is enough. This is, And I think you can see, can't you? This is not some, some bare legal edge obedience. There, I, I kept these rules. Paul doesn't want people calculating how much they're obeying, how much they're doing. I mean, how do you calculate more? More isn't the language of duty. More is the language of love. This more isn't a burden. This more is a question of heart, hunger, attitude. This is what makes Paul's life tick. And he kind of bares his heart. He wants them to see his own attitude so that they will seek God for it as he seeks God for them and prays for them. I see that in Philippians 3. Here's Paul's heart. Not that I have already attained or I'm already perfect. I press on. That's more word, right? That's more language. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call. It's an upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. I mean, that's just, that's just the classic more passage. And and he chooses, he chooses that illustration carefully. I don't know if you notice it, but he's actually talking about running a race, forgetting what's behind, straining toward what's ahead pressing on toward the goal. It's the language of a person who's running a race. And if there's one person who can't possibly stay content with where he or she presently is, it's a person running. The only thing that matters is what's ahead. The only thing that counts is the destination he hasn't reached yet if he's running a race. And then he says, mature Christians, they think this way. Mature people, 315, they don't count sacrifices. They don't, they don't uh, measure their time in church. They don't spend their time contemplating anything but more and more and more again. I sometimes feel haunted by Richard Roll's words in a great little book called The First Love. And he says this, he says, It is a serious waste to let a day go by without allowing God to change us. What a sentence. It is a serious waste to let a day go by without allowing God to change us. And so and so, what is God growing in your heart? I'm not asking what he's done. That's precious for sure. We can all joyfully list dozens of things God has done for us, for which we write and we sing songs of praise and worship. But what is he growing in your heart right now? And how is it becoming bigger and bigger, more and more in its manifestation? I think that's what Jesus was probably probing at in his parable of the soils. Remember how he said, he introduces it by saying the seed is the word in in Matthew. the, The nature of seeds is to be only the beginning of any process. That's what seeds are. They're not the end point. They're always the starting point. You get this idea of God freshly germinating things, old truths coming to life again, our hearts being stretched, our minds being deepened. I think there are are a couple more, two manifestations of God's work in particular that Paul said he wanted to have increased more and more. Here they are, point number two. Their hunger for knowing God and their diligence in honoring God must both never be quenched. I get that in Philippians 1, 9 and 10. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So that's what we've been looking at. Now he's going to say, What kind of, it's not just a sentimental love. What does that more and more really apply to? Well, more and more with knowledge, that's one, and all discernment. Oh, and I messed up the slides. There we go more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It's true that Paul talks specifically that their love would abound more and more. That's right there. Their love would abound more and more. But the rest of the sentence, it makes it very clear that the the love he has in mind isn't just, I, I mean, includes this, but it isn't just the love of affection. He's not just talking about admiration here. He's talking about knowledge, and he's talking about discernment, and he's talking about approving what is excellent, We're pretty fond of, of uh, forgiveness. But there's something even better than forgiveness. And that's the first thing. Paul prays for an ongoing thirst for the knowledge of God. He says that your love may abound more and more with knowledge. A lot of us aren't as anxious to grow in knowledge as we are fond of forgiveness. And and there's a reason for that. That's because forgiveness is freely given when we sincerely ask. Knowledge isn't given. Knowledge is learned. So forgiveness is easier to get than knowledge. And yet, even Jesus constantly made this distinction. Let me give you a text where you'll see that distinction, but only if you really look for it. Here are these famous words from Jesus. Come to me. It's just an invitation. That's all you have to do is come. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Look at these words. I will give you rest. Okay? Now it's take my yoke upon you. So at first it was just come. Now it's take. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart. Look at, And you will find rest for your souls. Do you see the difference here? Come and I will give. Take my yoke and you will find. Did you catch it? There's a rest given. And there's a rest found. So one comes freely and easily. The other comes from searching and learning and pressing in. So the, there's a darkness from which we are quickly delivered in forgiveness, and there's a darkness that can result from our own laziness that that takes time to grow in knowledge. Pastor Don, why are you making such a big deal of this? Why do I have to work so hard at growing in knowledge? Okay, that's the question Paul anticipates, I think, and it starts to unfold the answer in the very next thing he mentions. Paul prays for an increasing development and exercise of discernment. I get that, particularly in 9 and 10. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge. Okay, now what does he mean by that? And all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There used to be songs that taught the vital relationship between knowing in the Christian life and discerning in the Christian life. Think back when I was a kid and there weren't very many instruments and the piano was usually a bit out of tune, but not too many services went by before we'd sing more about Jesus let me learn more of his holy will discern. Spirit of God, my teacher be showing the things of Christ to me. And it's that word discern that I'm interested in. It it means to test things with the idea of holding on to that which is best. Paul makes it clear by the way, he explains discernment at the beginning of that 10th verse, that you may approve what is excellent. So, so take a good look at discernment. Discernment doesn't choose between what's good and what's bad. Discernment chooses between what's good and what's best. And that's the mindset, verse 15, that's the mindset that Paul describes as Mature maybe the word becomes even sharper when we look at another place where paul talks about the very same the very same word the same idea of discernment it's in romans chapter 12 verse 2 you know these words do not be conformed to this world boy there's a job be transformed by the renewal of your mind what what does a renewed mind do that that by testing, I like this, that by testing, and here's our word, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That Notice that phrase, that by testing, you may discern. And I think you can see right away, that there's there's more to the process of knowing the will of God than merely knowing what his will is. That's what we usually start to think about when we talk about God's will. Should I do A or should I do B? What's God's will? Paul clearly isn't just talking about what the will of God is. I mean, Paul isn't just talking about having a factual awareness of what God requires and what God forbids. It's it's deeper than that. Discerning God's will means something like um, proving it by comparison or proving it by applying it, putting it to the test, proving it by implication. So, So discerning God's will is really more like valuing and appraising God's will accurately, like like having your, your, your house evaluated. It's fixing a proper value on the object. That's what Paul means when he talks about discerning God's will. Here's the thing. You can know a great deal about something without knowing its value. Let's say I own a gold mine, and I hire you to work for me in the mine, okay? And I teach you everything you need to know. I teach you where you're most likely to find the gold. And I teach you to know what gold looks like when it lays bare in the vein. And I teach you the best way to extract it so that you don't waste any of it. And then I teach you how to tell real gold from fool's gold. And you're working for me for many years, so that you become an expert, an expert at mining gold. I used this illustration in my uh, Christian ed class. Boy, I was thinking the other day, did I ever love that class? Remember, we used to all gather in the South Sanctuary and pack that room out. There'd be questions and we'd study the text. We'll do it again. But I remember sharing this story. And so you become an expert at mining gold. But then let's also pretend that when I hired you, I brought you some from some remote place on earth where you've never even heard of gold. You don't know what people do with gold, because I never told you that. And you don't know how precious gold is. I mean, you know everything there is to know about mining gold because you learned it from me. You know everything about gold except what gold is worth. And I keep it that way because I'm giving you 25 cents for every pound of gold you bring up out of the earth. When Paul prays for more and more discernment and the ability to, quote, approve what is excellent. He's not just talking about more factual data, a theological download about God and Christianity. Now, that's very important. But it's just a starting point. Paul means something else. He, He means putting a diligent effort into valuing God's ways appropriately, so when desires and schedules compete for your limited resources and time, you will have the courage and the ability to choose the best over the good. That's what he's talking about. So, so both in the Romans 12 passage and in our Philippians text today, Paul is using different terms to describe the way a renewed mind discerns the excellence of the will of God. And I'm saying you can have a church upbringing without that kind of renewed mind. You can quote Bible verses without having that kind of renewed mind. You can have Christian parents without having that kind of renewed mind. You can be a Christian business person without possessing that kind of renewed Mind, You can know much about the will of God because you've grown up being taught the things God wants you to do and the things he doesn't want you to do. In fact, that's the way most of us frequently think about God's will. And it's terribly inadequate. You can go down into the gold mine and you can bring out what you've been assigned to do with your Christian life. And you can do all of that with little sense of the preciousness of God's will. And sooner or later probably later you will be brought by the spirit of god himself perhaps you'll be brought into some very specific situation where the value you place on the will of god will be tested this is so important there will come specific times when you are being pulled between the will of Father God and some cherished, seemingly worthwhile personal delight and ambition, and it's, and it's precisely at that moment that the Spirit of God will tell you to choose life, to taste and see that the Lord is good. In fact, it's better than just good, It's the best choice you can make when compared with all the other possibilities. I've said it before. God's will is what you would always choose if you had all the facts. That's what growth in discernment is all about. When Paul says discernment more and more, that's what he means. Here's a young man. He's dating an unsaved woman. In fact, he's, he's falling in love with her. Now, he's been taught since he was a child that it isn't right for a Christian to give his heart to a woman who isn't interested in following Christ. And up till this point in his Christian life, this young man never questioned that aspect of God's will. He never questioned it because until now, he never had to. Now, hear this church, now he's in love and now he has to learn the will of God. He doesn't have to learn what the will of God is. He already knows that. Now the battle is different and it's a lot more difficult. Both the risks and the rewards, oh, if he only had faith to see the rewards, both the risk and reward are greater. The test now is, isn't knowing God's will. The test is valuing God's will. It's discerning the value of God's will. The issue now is approving what is excellent, putting it to the test, finding out an experience. I pray that that silly little illustration of the gold mine, I pray it stays in your mind. We can all think of a thousand ways even sincere people In this age, robbed blind of precious opportunities simply by not knowing the value of something. Parents weep when their children squander away time and money not knowing the value of an education, right? Many times the same parents in different areas don't value the will of God. We want those we love to know the value of a dollar, so much so that many grow up thinking that the dollar can somehow fill the place of God in their heart, and they're just destined for misery. And so we're invited to discern and approve the excellency of God's will in a world of smoke and mirror delights. We're invited to allow the Spirit of God to renew and remake our minds so our brains are more fitted to the values of the kingdom than the values of Hollywood and Bay Street. There's nothing, there is nothing in the theaters or the television to teach you to prize the will of God above all else. This world soaks our lives in trivia. And so Paul prays, my, now we see Now we see why he prays so earnestly. Paul prays for the power to know this and resist this and embrace the knowledge of the Lord and to improve what is excellent over what is shiny and popular and empty. I took too long on that. Point number three, we're wrapping up. Being pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The road frequently less traveled. I'm looking at verses 10 and 11. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's what I'm thinking about. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. I think the key to really savoring Paul's message here lies in not separating it from the context. So, in other words, when Paul talks about being pure and blameless for the day of Christ, that's the day Jesus comes back to earth again, he means we, he means we can't be fully ready for that day just by not doing really bad things. It's just such a popular misconception. The problem with simply trying to stay clear of really bad choices is that you and I are not usually morally strong enough to trust ourselves to always resist temptation when it presents itself. I mean, certainly we're spiritually strong in some areas, but most of us aren't equally strong in all areas. So each of us has you know, a besetting type of sin where we can be tripped up given the right circumstances. I think that's why Paul prays as he does for these Christians at Philippi. Thinking about the coming of Jesus, he knows they will be better braced against temptation if If they've trained themselves, not merely to avoid dabbling in sin, but if they've trained themselves to treasure what is excellent. That's the stronger root. So the lesson is, I can better keep my life away from even the edges of compromise and sinfulness if I train myself to search for what is excellent and best. And that's exactly what Paul says in the remainder of our text, so that, 10 and 11, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure. That's, he's saying, this is how you'll be pure. Approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless at the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Not not just the imputed righteousness of Jesus, the fruit of, of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and to the glory of God. Let's just be a church. Let's just be a church that, that doesn't just know what God's will is, but an application has found it to be sweeter and better than anything else. It, it's It's the secret of not just pursuing righteousness, but growing in preferring righteousness. God help us all to that end. That's how you'll be pure and bring glory to God in this world. Let's pray. What a great text. There's so much in it for all of us to digest together. We, we, we want to hear your word, not just to hear your word in condemnation for all that we aren't, but to hear your word as, as the word of Christ that can be planted in our hearts and multiply beyond our wildest expectations. We want to go after the excellent in Christ and to prove it in our experience. That's what we desire. So bless your word, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.